welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you, Riz. Um, I hope I'm saying your name right. Is it? Uh, Reese. Yeah, it's pretty close. Reese. Good enough. Okay, Reese. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Good. That's all right. <laughs> and um, yeah, let me give the audience a short introduction so they get to know you uh, a little bit. And then I'll ask a few questions, um, if that's okay with you, a few interview questions before we go and dive into your research. Um, so Dr. Rice Renter, um, he is um, the lab head of the molecular physiology of microbial pathogens, um, MP2 lab. Um, and um, he is um, at the Monash University in the Biomedicine Discovery Institute. And um, he is um, originally from South Australia and he did his PhD at the University of Glasgow uh, and then he relocated to Monash University in 2015 where he worked as a research fellow and uh, Professor Travers Lithgow's uh, lab and Professor Chris Greening's lab um, and then in 2021 he started his own independent lab and um, he has a his interest in molecular physiology of bacteria and a strong experience in applying a combination of structural biology, molecular cell biology, and chemical biology to um, address um, important questions in, in this field. And um, this is really interesting. In his free time, he enjoys scuba diving and cycling and also um, yeah, teaching um, his four-year-old daughter uh, his hobby. So um, yeah, thank you so much for coming here today. Um, and we usually start asking or we are interested how you um, kind of discovered your passion or your interest in science and to work, um, to, you know, to choose your career to work then in science? Is it something that was like, you know, a childhood dream or some experience later on that kind of sparked this interest? Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Um, my daughter's five now and I haven't got a scuba diving yet. So, but I will, but you know, just to clarify, I'm not being irresponsible. Um, no, great question. So I think I've always kind of been a science nerd. My dad um, trained as a chemist and industrial chemist and sort of, I don't know, bribed me with chocolate from the age of about six to try and learn the periodic table, which didn't really work at the time. But always been kind of interested in, in science and the natural world. And, you know, was a classic kind of kid that had the chemistry set and you know would run around picking up bugs and and things like that and then kind of carried that through uh through my studies and ended up doing a degree in biotechnology at um, flinders university and i sort of i wasn't the best student in undergrad but as soon as i got in the lab in the final year in australia you do an honors project of your undergrad and this is a lab a lab based year and as soon as i got a pipette in my hand i basically i loved it and um worked super hard did pretty well and, and then kind of 
I took a bit of a detour after that and, and I went to Japan and taught English and left science for a bit, then ended up back in Western Australia working in a, in a salt mine. And it was, I was a process engineer and so I was doing really routine chemistry. And, but there are a few like uh, kind of research projects that we were working on and I was just, I would just gravitate towards the research. And I got to the point where I'm like, I've got to go back and do a PhD because I just love that discovery part of science. I have a real passion for it. And so, yeah, a few things happened and ended up in Glasgow and did a PhD there fell in love with microbiology, bacteriology, and also um, structural biology, which I'm going to talk about a bit today. And so this is understanding how the, the molecules that make up our cells and our bodies and bacterial cells, how they function on a molecular level. It's, it's just something which I, it kind of blew my mind at first, and it's just been an um, enduring passion of mine. So yeah, I guess that's it. I've always kind of been that nerdy science kid. I think I still am. Yeah, that's wonderful that... Um that you had this, you know, you always had kind of this passion and that it, you know, got supported throughout life and you got to continuing to, to do that. And it, it didn't die. <laughs> because oh, science, also it, sometimes... <laughs> academic science has tried to kill it. It's still going, but it's tried really hard. Yeah, because, you know, there are stories where like, schools and so on they kind of destroy that and and kids give up and do something else so um that's really uh, very encouraging to hear that you didn't give up and um and then if you could um if you could bring us to this project basically how you how this project came about maybe was it easy to get funding was it really hard did people believe that you know uh, you could or the lab could do this or did you have to be really you know use a lot of convincing tools <laughs> because you know there are stories like that you know we're about to give up or this was really easy to fund so yeah whatever peek behind the curtain you could give us thank you yeah sure so um i i kind of i joined this project i guess about five years ago um, my background is sort of biochemistry, the molecular biology, the, the molecular machines that, that make cells function. And so I just got into a, a sort of a serendipitous chat with um, Professor Chris Greening, who's a co-author on the paper. And he, he is a biochemist as well, but he's also done a lot of um, environmental microbiology and discovered this phenomenon that I'll talk about where bacteria in the soils and environments use the hydrogen in the air as an energy source. And so we're just chatting about that and he's, he was looking at some of the work I was doing on, on, on bacterial proteins and he was like, do you think you could isolate the enzyme, the, the machine that's responsible in the bacteria for doing this process? And I'm like, I, I thought it would be challenging, but I, I, I said, yeah, because, you know, I like a challenge. And, and so I joined his lab and we ended up working together on the project at the start before I set up independently. And he, we, we, we put in a grant to the Australian um, Research Council and, and got it funded, which I, which I guess kind of started the story, right? There's always a bit of luck in that, but we managed to get that grant funded. And yeah, just kind of worked away at it for about five years. And after a bunch of dead ends, hit on a formula that allowed us to, to succeed in, in isolating this enzyme and, and do the work. Well, I'm really glad it all worked out uh, because, you know, when we are here discussing with speakers, we are kind of at the happy ending. It turned into a great, you know, publication and everything is great. So, <laughs> so 
So, um, yeah, congratulations. And uh, yeah, we are very curious to hear more about your research. So um, everyone uh, feel free to access the slides. The link is posted on top of the room. And um, yeah, the stage is yours. Thank you. No worries. Thanks so much. So the slides I've put up don't, shouldn't have any um, animations. There's people assembling something outside my office. So hopefully you can still hear me okay. Um, the slides that I've set up don't have any animations in them. So we should just go through and I'll, I'll just let people know when I'm advancing from one slide to another. Okay, and I'll get started. So uh, it's a real pleasure to be invited to speak at um, today and, and, and tell you all about my research. And, and the title is uh, Living on Thin Air and it's the structural basis of, of atmospheric hydrogen scavenging by a soil bacterium. So I'm going to start out with a bit of background and then I'll go into the content of the paper and, and the discoveries that we made. And so the, the, the starting point I wanted to um, talk about is where this study began and it's um, bacterial consumption of atmospheric hydrogen. And to introduce this, the first concept I wanted to introduce um, was the concept of dormancy in bacteria and how it allows them to survive nutrient deprivation. So environmental and pathogenic bacteria um, survive resource deprivation by entering a dormant state. And in this state, they, they don't grow, they don't divide, but they do spend energy on, on maintenance. So the molecules in their side, inside their cell get damaged and um, the protomotive force, the energetic force that keeps the cell viable will degrade over time. And so dormant cells need a really small level of input to keep them going so they can revive and start replicating when times improve. And for a long time, dormancy as a, as a state the bacteria enter into was, was overlooked because most of our microbiology focuses on bacteria that cause disease. And most of our techniques for studying microbes involved growing them actively in culture. And so we kind of didn't consider too much what bacteria were doing when they were dormant, but actually this is an incredibly important process. So um, many bacteria in the environment are in a dormant state due to resource limit limitation, including soils where it's estimated that 80% of bacteria are dormant. And if you consider, I picked a random number off the internet, which is gonna be very variable, but uh, if the typical gram of soil contains 40 million bacterial cells and then 80% of all um, bacteria in soils are dormant, then there's an incredible amount of dormant bacterial life on the planet. In fact, perhaps more than any other kind of life except for phages. And so this is an incredibly important process. And so a fundamental discovery that was made by my collaborator on this work, or um, co-author Chris Greening, um, before I joined the lab a few, a few years ago, was that one of the ways that bacteria survive this energy deprivation is by oxidizing the trace reduced gases in the atmosphere. So when you think about the gases in the atmosphere, if you do that, you think about nitrogen and oxygen and carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide number is, is going up alarmingly, as we all know, but there's also other trace gases in the atmosphere. So hydrogen, which is present at um, 531 parts per billion, so half a part per million. Um, is that, yeah, uh, carbon monoxide and, um, and methane. And so bacteria have these enzymes called hydrogenases, which which when they're dormant in the soil, they, they produce and they can use these to scavenge the atmospheric hydrogen in the atmosphere and then convert it into, into energy for the cell. They do this by reducing an electron carrier. If you remember your textbook biology that creates protomotive force and then um, allows ATP to be generated, which is the energy currency of the cell. And so it was, it, we, it was known before I joined the project that, that bacteria could do this on the cellular level, but we didn't really know anything about the enzymes, the machines that make this happen. 
And so this is incredibly interesting, important from a bacterial physiology and environmental microbiology perspective, but it's also really important from a biogeochemical perspective. And that's because bacteria in the soils consume 75% of the hydrogen that's lost from the atmosphere every year. So hydrogen is produced both from natural and, and anthropogenic sources, um, fossil fuels, biomass burning, hydrocarbon for, um, fertilizers in, in the ocean. And bacteria represent by far the largest sink for this hydrogen. And, and so that's what keeps the hydrogen in the atmosphere to a large extent at the, at the level that it is. And this is important because it shapes the composition of our atmosphere. Because while hydrogen isn't directly a greenhouse gas, it does modulate the other concentrations of other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere by largely by competing with um, oxygen radicals in the upper atmosphere that will degrade things like methane. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really fundamentally important process from a global perspective. Um, but the stuff I'm most interested in on my research is, is the, the enzymes, the atomic level of the molecular machines that do this process. And so this is what, what I'm going to tell you about today. And so in order to do that, we use a model organism called Mycobacterium spegmatis. Um, and so this genus is kind of famous because it contains a couple of the most notorious pathogens, um, bacterial pathogens, disease-causing bacteria that exist on our planet. So Mycobacterium tuberculosis, which causes tuberculosis and Mycobacterium leprae. And so the bacteria has been used kind of as a model for these bacteria for some time. However, it's an environmental bacteria. It lives in the soil. It's saprophytic, meaning it eats decaying matter generally. Um, and it has this key property that it can, it can oxidize atmospheric H2, atmospheric hydrogen. And so this was shown by, um, by Professor Greening during his PhD studies, where he took cultures of Mycobacterium smegmatis and he sealed them in a, this is really simple, but quite an elegant experiment. He sealed them in a small glass vial and then put a small amount of hydrogen into the headspace of that glass vial and then used a gas chromatograph to basically watch how much hydrogen these bacteria could consume. And you can see from this graph here, you've got um, your hydrogen concentration on the y-axis and you've got time on the x-axis. And so the wild type cells basically consumed hydrogen to below atmospheric levels, as you can see here, um, over 24, 12 to 24 hours or so. And so he looked a bit deeper into this and analyzed the genetics um, of this organism, identified two hydrogenases, two of these enzymes that were likely responsible for this process, and then deleted them from, from the organism and could show that when he did that, um, the bacteria lost the ability to oxidize this hydrogen and that both of these enzymes were playing a role. One's called HHY, another one is called HUC, which, I'm, which is the subject of our paper and, and what I'm going to talk to you about today. Another thing that he showed was that if you delete these hydrogenases, if the bacteria is starving, if it doesn't have any other energy sources around, it's less viable over time. Um, and you can see this here by the lower cell number counts that were isolated from these mutants. And so that basically tells us that this process of consuming the hydrogen by the bacteria is important for its survival when there's no other food sources around because it's providing energy to the cells. And so because I'm going to be talking a lot about nickel ion hydrogenases, and some people will be protein people, um, biochemists, but some won't be, I thought I'd talk you through something about how these enzymes work, how these enzymes work. So you've got a picture on, on my screen, uh, which has a picture, picture of the atomic structure of the enzyme. It's got a large subunit in blue and a small subunit in green. The actual catalysis, the splitting of the hydrogen occurs in the large subunit at a, a nickel cluster that you can see in the middle in green. And then the reaction that, that's being mediated here is the splitting of molecular hydrogen H2, as you can see at the top of the screen, into um, two protons and two electrons. So I realized I, I forgot to tell people I was advancing slides. So we're currently on slide nine. Um, apologies for that. 
Uh, if I forget anything else, feel free to jump in and tell me that you've, I've lost you. And so the upshot of this reaction is that the electrons that are produced are what's known as, as quite low potential electrons. And so if you transfer them to a higher potential electron acceptor, like oxygen, you can produce energy, you can do work in an electrical circuit. And so this is what makes these enzymes useful for energy generation. And you can see the electrons are transferred by these balls here, which are ion, ion sulfur clusters in the enzyme. Okay, I'm advancing slide to slide 10 now. Apologies for that. So we're going to, now we're going to talk about the um, isolation and characterization of this enzyme HUC, one of the two enzymes that this bacteria, Mycobacterium smegmatis, uses to get um, energy from hydrogen in air. And so we knew the bacteria could do this, but we didn't have a way of, of, of isolating the enzyme, of pulling the enzyme out of the bacterial cell. And so a really talented PhD student in my lab, um, Ashley Crop, started to work on this project. And first of all, we started to look at the activity of, of this enzyme in the cells. And so in order to do that, we use a, a technique called native page, where you basically, you break open the cells and you, and you take their, their insights basically, and you separate them on a, on a gel. So this gel separates things based on size with big things at the top and small things at the bottom. And then we applied a stain to this gel that allows us to detect um, the activity of the enzyme, the hydrogenase stain, and you get a purple band on, on that stain, so we're on slide 11 now. Um, and so you can see at the top and bottom of the gel that there, there were two species in the organism which were staining for activity, staining for enzyme activity. But on the left-hand side, you can see the wild-type wild type strain wasn't making very much enzyme. So we isolated a mutant accidentally that made a lot more enzyme. And then we focused on this, this mutant in order to, to purify the enzyme. And so now we're gonna move to slide 12. And so in order to isolate the enzyme from this, this bacteria, we use some genetic engineering techniques to, to add what's called an affinity tag to it. So enzymes are made from amino acids and they're encoded by genes. So we added a gene sequence into the genome that added an additional amino acid sequence to this enzyme, which allowed us to isolate it with a special kind of resin. So it basically made the enzyme stick to, to a chromatography resin and then we could isolate it. And so Ashley did this work and it worked really well. And we managed to use chromatography to purify the enzyme. And so you can see on the left-hand side, you've got a chromatography trace and you've got this peak that's in purple that contained our intact enzyme. And then you can see uh, another um, gel This uh, in the middle. This is a, an SDS page gel. So this separates protein based on their size as well. And we could see that this enzyme contained three uh, three subunits, so three different components. And two of those components corresponded to the to the enzyme subunits I talked about before, this large and small subunit of the enzyme. But there was an additional component that we had isolated that was part of this complex that we didn't know. We didn't know what that was. And so then you can see on the right-hand side, we did a, a gel, a native gel, so a gel where the enzyme is still active, and we stained that and showed that the enzyme was very active, so it isolated the active enzyme. And so this doesn't seem like a lot of work, but it, but it, it probably took actually maybe eight to 10 months to do this whole process. And it was, it was no guarantee of success. It's, it's very, very technically demanding. So it's a great effort. Um, so now we'll move on to slide 13. So we wanted to know what this third subunit of, of the HUC complex was, because um, it wasn't expected to be there. 
and, and we were quite curious to, to know how that shaped how this complex forms. And so we used a technique called mass spectrometry, which basically allows you to identify proteins. So we, we removed, we cut out the band from our gel, um, where you can see the question marks on the left with a scalpel. And we sent it from mass spectrometry and identified the protein as this um, as a product of this gene called MSMEG2261. Um, and this was in, in the genome of the bacteria directly upstream of our other catalytic genes um, of, the, of the other parts of the enzyme. And we knew that that gene was there, but we didn't know what it did. And so this confirmed that it was an additional part of this complex. And then if you can see on the right-hand side, um, Ashley made a knockout of, of this gene and showed when we made the knockout, we lost the this high molecular weight complex species of the enzyme. So you can see where it says wild type, you've got a band that's quite high up. It's around um, uh, 900 kilodaltons, which is a large size. And then in the knockout, that high up band is gone, showing that we were no longer forming the complex. So this, ends, this, this protein component is important for complex formation. And so that's kind of the isolation and the characterization of the enzyme. I'm moving on to slide 14 now. And so inside bacterial cells, the things that make these enzymes special, these hydrogenases special, are that they and allow them to oxidize atmospheric hydrogen is that they're, they're very sensitive, they're very high affinity, and they're insensitive to inhibition by oxygen. So there's other hydrogenase enzymes that have been studied in the past, but, but none of these enzymes have these properties. And, and so they're not, they can't um, get the energy from the hydrogen in air and so we wanted to check that with the isolated enzyme that, that it still had these properties because we thought maybe it might be something to do with the bacteria and the context of the enzyme in the bacteria and so we did some uh some activity assays basically and so you can see on the left hand side um, it's the same experiment I talked about before, where you seal some of the purified enzyme in a glass vial, and then you add some hydrogen into the headspace of the vial, and then you test the concentration of hydrogen over time using a gas chromatograph. And so you can see with the pink line that very quickly the enzyme consumed the hydrogen to below atmospheric concentration, and in fact to the, the limit of detection for our instrument. So it's basically sucking all of the hydrogen out of, of, the, of, the, of the air, which was a phenomenal result. And then we tested the kinetics of the enzyme, so its ability to function in different concentrations of oxygen, and you can see this on the right here. And so when you have 0% um, oxygen in the buffer you're doing the experiment in, you have the same, the enzyme has the same activity as when you saturate the buffer with oxygen. And, and so this indicates that, that Huck is entirely resistant to inhibition by oxygen. And, and so both of these observations were firsts for, for this class of enzyme and for any catalyst, in fact, that... Um, is, is capable of converting hydrogen into, into electrons, into electricity. And so then we wanted to directly uh, assess the ability of, of, of Huck of our enzyme to turn hydrogen into electricity. And so for this, we teamed up with um, Professor Carly Vincent's lab at, at the University of Oxford, and they do a technique called um, protein film electrochemistry. And so I'm going to break this down very, to very simple terms. The actual experiment is much more complicated than this. Oh, sorry, I'm on slide 15 now. Um, and so, so basically what you do is you, you take your enzyme and you attach it directly onto an electrode and then you provide it with hydrogen. And so if, the, it's, if it's turning the hydrogen into um, electrons, if it's splitting it, then you can observe an electrical current. And so on the right here, you've got a quite a complicated looking diagram um, of the data output from this. And I'm not going to go into it too much in detail but if you can see on the, on the right hand side how some of the 
some of the traces curve upwards at the end, um, that means that they're producing electrical current. So the y-axis is current density. And so basically what this data shows is that um, Huck is able to produce observable current in this experiment down to a concentration of about um, five parts per million, which is which is 10 times the concentration of hydrogen in the atmosphere. But this is a very um, crude experiment, so it's, it's not very optimized. So this is a, a very nice illustration that Huck can, can turn hydrogen into electricity, small amounts of current down to very, very low concentrations. So this was a very cool result too. And so that character, this characterization basically shows us three things. It shows us that the enzyme is, is very high affinity, it is insensitive to oxygen, and it is able to convert very low concentrations of hydrogen into, into some electrical current, just to summarize. And so now I'll move on to slide 16, and I'll talk to you about probably the part I find the most satisfying, which was determining the structure of, of Huck using a technique called cryo-electron microscopy. And so now we're on to slide 17 in the slide deck. So cryo-electron microscopy, is, it's a technique that's been around for a very long time, but in recent times, it's become a very useful technique for, dis, for understanding the structure of biomolecules at the, at the atomic scale. And this is because of a lot of te technological advances, but, it, but it's become a, a very cool technique to do. And so we had our purified um, enzyme sample, but we had no idea what it looked like. So with the help of, of Harry at our electron microscopy facility here at Monash, we um, we put some grids which contain Huck into an electron microscope and, and looked at it. So the process of preparing these grids is actually pretty cool. You put a, put a very small drop of your enzyme solution on a very um, a grid with very small molecular sized holes in it, and then you blot the grid and you plunge freeze it into liquid ethane. And so instead of forming um, ice, it forms this vitreous frozen layer, and you can visualize individual molecules, which is cool. And so on the left hand side, you can see this distinctive clover leaf shapes where you have um, which are the which are the molecules of the enzyme that you're observing directly and then you can see on the on the right hand side that some of these enzymes form associations with uh, little lipid vesicles so you've got those little sort of misshapen circles which are decorated around the outside by by these molecules of, of, of the enzyme. And, and this is consistent with, with some previous work that had been done, which shows that, that this enzyme associates with the cellular membrane and, and that's how it transfers its energy. So this was amazing when we saw this because you, you don't know if it's gonna work and you don't know what your sample's gonna look like. And then we saw these really beautiful um, structures and we knew we were gonna, we were gonna do pretty well with our, with our structural objectives. And so then we used, we collected a lot of these images, we collected maybe 5,000, 6,000 of these images, and then we used them to recreate the three-dimensional structure of, of, of this enzyme. And so basically, each one of those individual images is very noisy, of, of the particles is very noisy, and you can't um, get much information from it. But if you extract all of the little pictures of all of the um, of the enzyme, and then you and then you average them, you can get down to atomic resolution um, information. And so this is one of the crazy things about the technique. You take these images have very little signal, and by averaging hundreds of thousands of them at different orientations, you can reproduce a three-dimensional structure. And that's what you can see see here. Sorry, slide 18 now. Um, and so at the top of of the thing, you've got what are called 2D class averages. So these are basically averages of all these different particles at different orientations. And then you combine all those orientations to produce a 3D map of, of, of what the atoms in, in the structure look like. And, and you can see that in the blue um, down at the bottom part. And we got a reconstruction resolution of, of 2.15 angstroms, which for those in the know is, is seems like quite a good result. 
Uh, slide 19 now. So 2.15 angstroms is, is, is kind of a, a nice resolution. It's something that you can work with. However, this wasn't uniform. Our ability to resolve the, what the structure was wasn't uniform across the uh, across the whole molecule. So on the right-hand side, there's a little movie. So if you press play, you can see that when you do this technique, you can capture some of the motion that's occurring in the particle and solution. And, and, and so this enzyme's kind of twisting. And that twisting is blurring the... Um, the image that we collect. And so we can't, at the edge of the image, we're not getting a good idea of what the particle looks like. And so then we can't analyze it. And so that was was kind of a little bit frustrating, but um, sorry, onto slide 20 now. So we revisited our collection um, and we changed some parameters. We increased the concentration. So you can see on, on the left-hand side of this image, you've got a lot more particles packed into the same space. And then instead of um, focusing on doing a reconstruction of that entire cloverleaf sh clover shape, um, we focused on one of the four um, nodes and, and did a reconstruction on that. And, and when we did that, we got a very high resolution um, of 1.52 angstroms, which, which is actually a resolution record for this technique for, um, for, for this kind of protein. And you can sort of see, if you look at the map in the, in the center, you can see density for individual atoms and if you look at some of the structures in the protein down on the bottom right, you can see that the density, which is in blue, um, matches very well with what you, you expect the atomic structure to be. And so this is an exquisitely high um, resolution uh, structure, which allows us to tell a lot about how the enzyme functions. And it's also very exciting to see. And so that's kind of the majority of the story of solving the structure, except for the fact, if you remember, I said before that some of the some of the particles of this enzyme, sorry, we're on, on slide 21 now, some of the slides particles form an association with with membranes. And we noticed from our uh, class averages, which you can see in the middle of the screen, that it's the, the whole thing kind of looks like a tree, but the trunk of the tree is is quite blurry because it's because it's moving. And that, that's because it has a flexible attachment to the rest of the molecule. And so we did some additional analysis to resolve um, this part of the molecule and basically showed that the full complex of, of our enzyme looks like a, a tree and that stalk is what attaches it to the, to the cellular membrane. And so we're on to slide 22 now where I'm going to tell you a bit about the structure and assembly of, of our enzyme. And now slide 23. So from our structural analysis, we could see that the complex of this enzyme was made up of eight um, of the small subunit HUC-S, eight of the large subunit HUC-L, and four of this additional subunit HUC-M that we identified from our mass spectrometry. And basically, you can see it looks like a tree, and then you can see how one of the four lobes that we reconstructed at high resolution has much more detail than the other parts of the structure. And so now we're on slide 24. So using this um, data, we managed to reconstruct an atomic model of what our enzyme looks like. And you can see that on the, um, on the right-hand side. And, and, so, and this allows us to tell us a lot about how, how the enzyme's functioning and, and how it has these, uh, these extraordinary properties. So now we're on slide 25, and I've just made a short animation which shows you how this um, complex goes together. So if you just press play on that now. You can see that you've got one of the individual um, catalytic subunits of the enzyme, so that small and large protein subunit. And two of those come together and they form this kind of heart-shaped dimer. 
And then if we add in one of those HUCM molecules, you can see that it forms this kind of uh, sort of long squiggly shape, which, which doesn't look like it's much on its own. But then if you add the other three, you can see that it's forming this, this stalk, which scaffolds the entire enzyme together. And so for structural biologists, this is just super cool because we had no idea what this was going to look like. And, and then we get this really elegant you know, structure that nature has made and biology has made um, to do a specific function. And so then you can see from the top down, you've got this um, cloverleaf shape that was evident on our initial um, images from our, from our cryo-electron microscopy. And you can see the stalk at the bottom, which connects the protein to the membrane is, is hollow in the middle. And that's something which um, I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. Okay, so now we'll move to slide 26. And I'm just going to show you a little bit about the, um, the relay of the Huck electron transport chain. So I'm going to press play now. So this is one of the individual catalytic um, subunits of the enzyme, so the blue HUCL and small HUCS molecules. And one of the really nice things about the quality of the data was we could see clearly where all of the different cofactors were that allow the hydrogen to be split and the electrons to be transferred through the enzyme. And we got a really nice look at the active side of the enzyme, which appeared to have um, an, an oxygen atom bound showing that it's in an oxidized state, which in other enzymes is thought to be inhibitory, but in Huck it doesn't seem to inhibit the enzyme. And there's a really interesting feature, which is the incorporation of a, um, a D-amino acid into one of the residues that was coordinating the active site. And so D-amino acids are basically unheard of in, in proteins. Almost all amino acids are L-amino acids, but because of the quality of the density, we could tell that somehow the bacteria is incorporating a D amino acid in this position. And then finally, we could see the electron acceptor substrate for the enzyme, which is a, a bacterial electron carrier called metaquinone. Um, okay, so now on to slide 27. So I just want to stop and talk about our D histidine for a moment. So this is something which, which is quite unusual because as you probably know, if you've, you've studied um, yeah, early university level biology, proteins are made from L amino acids and, and D amino acids aren't generally incorporated. But um, there's, a, there's a movie which is basically just showing the density. If you press play now, it, it'll rotate around. But because we could see the position of, of hydrogen atoms in this structure because of the resolution, we could show that this amino acid was, was a D amino acid. And, and the, the question we kind of had was why? Why would this modification be made? Um, and what we noticed was that other hydrogenases have have a, a histidine. So this amino acid is, is a histidine, have a histidine in this position, and it's interacting with one of the electron transferring iron sulfur subunits. And so all hydrogenases have a histidine here, but instead of being an L histidine, ours is a D histidine. And we noticed it changes, a, causes a very small change in the structure of the protein in this region. Um, but the properties, the electrochemistry of these ion sulfur clusters is very sensitive to these small changes. So what we think is probably happening is this change is, is kind of tuning the electrochemistry of the enzyme so that it's able to oxidize atmospheric hydrogen. So this is our working hypothesis, but we, we have some more work to do here. Okay, so now we'll move on to slide um, 28. Uh, and I'll talk about a bit about the structural basis for HUC O2 insensitivity. And now slide 29. So HUC is insensitive to inhibition by O2 and other um, hydrogenases are not. 
And so a lot of work was done on these hydrogenases very, a very long time ago. And so in order to find a good graph, I went back to um, 1985 and found this paper where they were testing the oxygen sensitivity of, uh, of a different hydrogenase from this family. And so if you follow along, this is on the left-hand side. If you follow along, you can see initially that hydrogen is added at time zero, and then you see an increase in activity. And then with the dashed line, you can see when you add air in, the activity basically goes down to baseline and the enzyme's inactive unless you recover it. Whereas as you'll, as you'll, note, as you'll note from the data I presented before, Huck is, is insensitive to oxygen. And, and so we wanted to analyze our structural data to try and get, get an idea for why this was happening. And so I'll move on to uh, slide 30 now. And so basically, the catalytic site, so the part where catalysis occurs at the heart of the enzyme is connected to the outside by these, by these gas channels and, and that allows the hydrogen to, to come from the outside and diffuse into the enzyme and then catalysis occurs. And so we analyzed the, the radius, the size of these gas channels and these are like atomic scale structures, but from our, from our structure, we can say that, uh, we can analyze this. And so on the um, left-hand side, you can see the gas channels for that hydrogenase from the previous slide. And there they have a, an average di or the bottleneck diameter. So the smallest diameter of these is between um, 1.21 and 1.29 angstroms. So these are not distant scales normal people ever think about, but yeah, about the radius of, of, of an atom, of a hydrogen atom. And whereas the, the gas channels in our enzyme Huck were significantly smaller, and this was the case for all of the oxygen sensitive enzymes that have been studied, they all had large gas channels and, and Huck had quite small gas channels. And so what we think is happening based on this is that the gas channels of, of our enzyme have evolved to be smaller. And so they're kind of creating a molecular sieve where hydrogen, which has a slightly smaller um, atomic radius than oxygen can get into the active site, whereas oxygen is getting excluded. And so that's what allows, we think that's what allows Huck to be oxygen um, insensitive. Um, or at least that was our hypothesis, uh, but we wanted to test this in a little bit more detail. So we're on slide 31 now. And so we teamed up with um, Simon Khalid's lab, also at the University of Oxford, and they performed some molecular dynamic simulations on our enzyme in the presence of oxygen and hydrogen. And so these are really cool. This is a really cool field of study and, and really cool experiments where basically you, you take the atomic structure of your enzyme um, and you put it computationally in, in a box with water and with um, these gas molecules. And then you basically run a simulation that simulates what would be happening to it in, in its native environment. And then you see, you basically observe what happens and it's, it's sort of like a running an experiment built on, on the computer. And so this result was actually really striking because looking at our simulations, um, there are a number of instances over the course of the simulation where we saw hydrogen getting into the active site and even reaching a position where it could be engaged in catalysis. And you can see that on the, on the left-hand side with those yellow spheres. And, but however, all the oxygen molecules in, in, in the simulations were stopped at a bottleneck outside of the active site. So this really supported our hypothesis that these narrow gas channels were leading to exclusion of oxygen and, and showing how evolution has kind of evolved these enzymes to cope in an environment that would ordinarily poison them. Okay, so now we'll move on to slide 32, um, which is metaquinone is the electron acceptor for Huck. So one thing we didn't know about this enzyme was once it breaks open hydrogen, it sends its electrons somewhere and they need to they need to be transferred into the cellular electron transport chain. So this, this is the series of enzymes that develop um, a protomotive force, which makes ATP and keeps the cell alive. And so 
but when we did our structure, we noticed that there was density in, in the structure for this, this molecule metaquinone, which is the, the membrane bound electron acceptor for the electron transport chain in, in this bacteria. And so in order to test if this was actually the case, we, um, we tested the how far, sorry, I'm moving on to slide 33 now. Um, hope I'm doing okay there. Uh, we tested how fast the enzyme was when it had a different, different substrates to accept electrons. So the, these kind of reactions require two parts, right? So the hydrogen is split and then it releases electrons, but in order for the electrons to function, it needs to, in order for the enzyme to function, it needs to send its electrons to something. Otherwise the electrons just build up and then the enzyme stops. And so, there's this upside on the other side of the enzyme at the end of those iron sulfur clusters where an electron acceptor substrate attaches, it accepts the electrons and then it goes away and then the enzyme keeps working. And so the better your electron acceptor substrate is, basically the faster the enzyme will run. And what we saw um, on the left-hand side in that graph is that when we used a, a compound called metadione, the enzyme was much faster than we, when we used other non-specific compounds. And so metadione is the, um, active portion of this um, molecule metaquinone. We can't use metaquinone in these assays because it's, it's too hydrophobic. But basically this shows us that um, enzymatically um, metaquinone is the, is the electron acceptor. But this was a little bit curious for us because we know that Huck is, so I'm, I'm gonna move on to slide 34 now, because I know we know that Huck is um, associated with the membrane of the cell, but metaquinone is, is hydrophobic and so it doesn't like to leave the membrane and so it was a real question for us of how the metaquinone is, is getting into into the enzyme so that it can be reduced with hydrogen and provide energy to the cell but looking at the whole structure we think we have a pretty good idea of of, of how this works and so i'm just starting this movie uh now so if you want to look along so this is a um an animation of the entire structure with all of its um cofactors and uh electron transport chain. And then, so then I've made a transparent view of the top of it and you can see in purple all of those um, metaquino molecules which were which were bound to the structure. And here's just a different view of that rocking back and forth just so we have time to like equilibrate to what, what the structure looks like. And so if we zoom in we can see that these metaquinone molecules are very close to those iron sulfur molecules, which transfer the electrons. And so transfer is, is very favorable. And so one thing we noticed was that the interior of this part of the enzyme was entirely hydrophobic. And so it's it's lined by amino acids, which, which don't like water, they're, they're hydrophobic. And so that's a nice environment for the quinone to sit in. And the other thing was this tube that attaches, to, uh, attaches the enzyme to the membrane is also entirely lined by hydrophobic residues. So it can basically act as a funnel which allows the metaquinone to get into that um, chamber in the middle of the enzyme and then and then be reduced by the enzyme. As you can see there, hopefully that worked okay. So I'll move on to slide 35 um, now and, and sum up the biology of, of what we discovered from this system. And so basically Huck is this large multimeric um, protein complex which attaches to the cellular membrane and it has eight um, active catalytic enzymes. And it has this hydrophobic um, tunnel, which connects it to the membrane and which we hypothesize in our model, um, metaquinone from the membrane, which is an electron carrier, diffuses up the, the tube and then it um, binds to the enzyme and is, is reduced with electrons from atmospheric hydrogen to metaquinol, which then diffuses back into the membrane and can be used to generate energy for the cell. And, and so that's how these um, 
these bacteria manage to live on air. And so I just wanted to really briefly talk about what potential applications this enzyme might have for converting air into electricity, because there was a fair bit of press on this um, when the paper came out and, and some of it got a little bit hyperbolic. So um, I'm gonna try and bring it back to, to ground level, um, but, but we do genuinely think that that this enzyme and, and this process that we've discovered has, has, has really good potential for developing fuel cells and other devices that, that might really help us in the future. Um, I would stress that what we've done here is we've made the discovery, um, but we haven't, you, you know, we need to combine this knowledge with a lot of engineering and a lot of expertise to turn it into anything. And so now we're on slide 36. So, so what we've shown is that Huck is an incredibly efficient catalyst for converting H2 into electricity. It's far more efficient than anything else that's been discovered. And it's also highly resistant to oxygen, carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, which are molecules which are in, inhibit other fuel cells. Um, another thing is it can efficiently produce electrical current at um, low concentration of H2, including you know, sub-explosive um, concentrations. So hydrogen above 4% in air is explosive. So there's, there's a bit of awkwardness dealing with that sometimes. And the current uh, fuel cell technology that's most common requires pure hydrogen at 99%. So we think there's some possibilities there. And the other thing about making this enzyme is if we can do it efficiently is it doesn't require rare metals like platinum or palladium which, which have a cost associated with their mining. So it's made from, from relatively simple and readily available stuff, at least on an atomic level. So now move on to slide uh, 37. So I did a bit of um, mathematics to figure out exactly how much energy there is in air from hydrogen. And the concentration of hydrogen in the air is quite small as we, we knew it's 0.053 parts per billion. Um, and so based on the calculations that I did, um, Every meter of squared of air contains the hydrogen equivalent in energy to a thousandth of, a, of an AA battery. And so if an average American home is 720 meters squared, then the air in it contains hydrogen, which has about the power of um, 0.6 AA batteries, right? Which, which, isn't, which isn't an awful lot. But if we could figure out a way to passively extract this hydrogen efficiently, then potentially there could be enough energy available and and but this is this is not technology that exists and I don't know how we would do this but it's just kind of a nice thought experiment I thought so now, now I'll move on to uh, slide 38 um, but another thought experiment is if there's one percent hydrogen in air then there's a lot more energy in, in that and that's at a sub um, explosive concentration and so if that's the case then one meter of squared of air contains um, the equivalent of uh, 16 AA batteries and a litre contains 1.6% of the energy of AA batteries. And the gas, because gas can be conveniently stored and compressed to a high um, to a high density, then even a low amount of hydrogen in air could provide a useful amount of energy coupled with, with a device that was powered by Huck. So this is sort of the direction that we're thinking in, in terms of taking the technology further. Um, but any, uh, any suggestions or thoughts would be really welcome. And so one place that this could maybe be used is in um, waste streams that contain a small amount of hydrogen, but it's not enough for other technologies to, to work on and also for fugitive emissions. So one of the issues that has been flagged with, with fuel cells generally is that a certain amount of hydrogen escapes from them. And so if we move to a really hydrogen intensive economy, we'll actually be putting a lot of hydrogen into the atmosphere, which will have um, knock-on effects with, with global warming. And so there's concerns that that will end up creating a problem as well, and it won't be as, as clean or carbon mitigating as, as we first thought. 
And so that's really about it for the science. When we were making our press for the, oh, sorry, now I'm on slide 39. When we were making our press for this um, paper, we made a little animation showing how this works. So basically we had our bacteria. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll talk you through it. So we'll go back to the start. So if you press play now, um, we have a bacteria in the soil and it's eating hydrogen to stay alive when it's starved. And inside the bacteria, there's this enzyme huck and it splits the hydrogen and makes electricity. And we took the enzyme out of the bacteria, not using tweezers. And when you put it into an electrical circuit, it can produce some electricity. And so this is sort of our, our thought experiment for how we could use this technology moving forward. Um, and that just leaves me with the acknowledgements because obviously, so this is slide 40 now, sorry. Because obviously this is not something which, you know, a single person can do alone. And so many, many people helped um, with this. Uh, including um, Professor Chris Greening, who was the co-lead on this study and, and started this project off and and, um, and and did at least an equal amount of work of the project all the way through. Um, Ashley Kropp, who did a lot of work in the lab and collaborators from Uppsala University, Oxford University, Ohio State University, Otago University and um, the Free University of Berlin. And so that's about it. Um, slide 41 is just um, my lab. It's the Grinter Lab. Um, we're at uh, Monash University Biomedical Discovery Institute. And current lab members include myself and four PhD students, Ashley Kropp, Daniel Fox, Fabian Munda, and um, David Gillette, uh, and we're currently recruiting people. So um, thanks so much for listening. And if there's any questions, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, thank you so much for this really beautiful presentation um, and this wonderful animations that are so cool. Um, that really visualizes, um, you know, the the structure and um, how it moves. So it's it's so impressive what we can see and do nowadays. <laughs> I'm still very impressed by by those. It's really wonderful. So thank you. And that last animation was really cool too. Um, uh, too like I know it's really uh, simplified but to summarize the whole idea I think uh, that's that's really wonderful um, so yeah thank you for sharing this with us and the first questions I have are probably um, you know I'm I'm trying to think of um, like the questions that that people could have in general so um, one thing is is there a way to, you, you showed the efficiency basically in equivalent to a battery, how much energy basically it, it can produce. Is there a way or are people studying um, to maybe engineer these structures um, uh, to make these more efficient in the future? Yeah, yeah. So I guess this is an ongoing um, field in in fuel cells generally, um, which, I, which I think are making people are making progress on. But one of the things I think that's exciting about our enzyme is one one of the things that's really holding us back is um, is what the catalyst can do, right? So uh, most fuel cells nowadays use a platinum or palladium catalyst, which is pretty efficient, but requires 100% hydrogen, and you've got to separate it from its other electrode, which which accepts oxygen, and so where we really see the potential of, of our enzyme is is providing a, a different set of operating parameters. It can do things differently and do things um, some, in a more efficient way to the catalysts that exist. And so we think we can be part of this optimization process. Yeah, 
Yeah, I, I agree. And um, so would it be, so could you um, drive up basically the efficiency by um, having more like a higher, I guess the higher the hydrogen concentration in the gas is, um, the the more energy you would produce, I, I assume, right? Um, and yeah, would there be, for example, because, you know, we had rooms in another club with, what can you do with the energy that you produce too much during the day, let's say with solar panels and, um, you know, you can store it in batteries, but, you know, we need also other systems. So could you basically, with like um, energy that you uh, produce too much at specific times of the day, to concentrate hydrogen in a gas, and then at night basically um, have a better energy, like an energy production through that? Yeah. So this would be a fantastic solution, right? So um, processes like electrolysis can produce hydrogen from excess power and then, yeah, if you have efficient fuel cell technology to turn that into power, even combustion, but fuel cells would be great, then we can get around this this current problem that we have. We're like, you know, somewhere like in Australia, like we can make we can make all the electricity we want in the daytime basically, but most of it's solar and so then it's off at night. Um, there are also, so these enzymes work in, in both directions, right? So different variants of these enzymes will, will take um, protons and electrons and turn them into hydrogen under the right circumstances. And so there's active research in in potentially using enzyme-based processes or, or using these enzymes in cells, in bacterial cells to make hydrogen as well. So, so yeah, this is, this is definitely, would definitely, hydrogen definitely represents a means of, of this power storage. It's just about putting all these pieces into place because so you need, you know, your efficient generation and then you need your efficient storage and then you need, you know, fuel cells or other technologies which can, which can turn that into energy on demand, basically, turn into electricity on demand. Yeah, um, yeah, I think it's it's really great. Um, why I'm thinking a lot about this is, you know, in in Germany where I grew up and and studied most of the time, the nuclear power plants got turned off, and then. Um, and then uh, to kind of not have more fossil fuels and meet the climate, um, you know, uh, requirements, uh, people are talking or the industry is talking a lot about um, using hydrogen for energy um, production. Um, so I think <laughs> you should talk with them. <laughs> I don't know if there's a way. Did anyone approach you from different governments or you know, industries, um, because, you know, you also have the Berlin University in there. Is there, is there any kind of industry interested already in your, in your work? Yeah. So we're engaging in discussions with a few people. The thing for us, I guess, is that like, you know, we're, um, microbiologists and protein biochemists. And so, and we, we made this discovery, we published the paper. And so we're very keen to, to take it forward and we're having some discussions with with people but I, I think for us the amount of work that's required to like you know engineer our enzymes so it's suitable for this purpose and then create a prototype fuel cell that can be useful in applications 
is is our next step, right? And then once that's ready, you know, you would try and fit it into the this hydrogen economy as as it develops. Yeah, I hope you know. I hope this you know goes. Um, yeah, I understand you would need you know other people to take this and and then use it. But um, yeah, I hope it happens rather soon. It's, <laughs> it's well, it's really interesting. The whole the whole concept of hydrogen requires like a total rethink of how we we do energy, right? Because hydrogen can't be it can't be shipped around in tankers efficiently like natural gas can, simply because of the amount of energy it's required to and the temperatures that are required to compress it into a liquid. It, it's just in energy inefficient. And so this whole idea of of getting energy in one place and shipping it to another doesn't work so much anymore. So you'll have the concept that, that at least comes to my mind is you'll have hydrogen production hubs in in the countries where they exist, where you have existing energy, and then these will distribute to industry that surrounds them, right? So, but I think that it needs to be a bit of a change in, in mentality in terms of how how the global energy environment ecosystem thinks about thinks about these kind of things. Yeah, yeah, I I agree that there has to be a shift and. Um, a lot to be done, but I, yeah, I hope we'll uh, do that. I want to pass on, I'll have more specific question, uh, but um, I want to um, give people a chance to ask questions. So Kirko, Dr. Shah, Jamie, um, yeah, please go ahead, ask your question. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your wonderful work with us. Uh, out of curiosity, I was just wondering, uh, I think that there was one of the slides you mentioned about the uh, MK that was the menaquinol, to menaquinol. And I was just wondering, uh, is there any kind of approach for extraction of the substance? For example, MK can be, uh, you know, extract somehow, for example, sonication or those kind of things. Did you have any idea about, around that? Yeah, yeah. So I guess it can be purified. So, so what this um, what this process is doing is is is, is the metaquinone already exists in the cell, and it's 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 reducing it into metaquinol, which is I guess it's probably not a super stable state. And so by the time you tried to uh, purify it, it would probably have oxidized again. But one of the other potential applications that we're really interested in this enzyme is is as a source of electrons, as a source of energy for, for chemical synthesis. So if you had your enzyme in a chemical reaction and it was producing menaquinol, that menaquinol could then be used by another enzyme to make a chemical reaction happen. And that could allow you to create a drug or, or some kind of um, pharmacoactive or bioactive molecule. And so this is a, this green chemistry kind of, stuff is, is very, um, people are very interested in it. So this is, this is another potential application of the enzyme. Yes, as long as that uh, geometrically, how you just demonstrate that it, it makes sense somehow. Also during the, I mean, that was part of the protocol, I think that you, you are using the mycobacterium. And I was just wondering to ask you about the symbiosis, how it just helped during the process, as long as they can be opposite of each other or they can help in the way of the uh, symbiosis. I was wondering, maybe you have further explanation. Also, the protocol suggests the different pH 
that you use. And, um, you know, there was a very kind of uh, interesting protocol that you use, also the type of the um, uh, kind of antibiotic that you use, polymeric symbisulfate. I was wondering about asking, is there any specific reason that you use this one? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess it's a bit of serendipity in a way, right? So for uh, for getting bacteria to do things you want them to, especially genetically, or to carry um, carry DNA, which is useful, you usually use an antibiotic selection marker. So otherwise, because bacteria try and be as efficient as they can be, they'll just they'll they'll get rid of stuff they don't need. So you provide them with the DNA that you want them to have, but then you put an antibiotic resistance gene on it. And then you grow them with the antibiotics so they, they keep the genetic material. But usually the kind of antibiotic that you end up using is just, it's it's based on what other biologists have historically isolated from the environment. And so people discover genes that cause resistance to antibiotics and then, then they use them as a tool. And so I, th I think it's probably more of a just what ha people happen to come across and found that worked in the past. But with the mycobacterium, that was symbiotically, right? The use of that as part of the protocol. Uh, symbiotic, sorry, I'm not quite sure yes, what I mean, you mean by symbiotic. I was wondering right? about the, I mean, kind of, um, because as part of the protocol, you suggest that they can be opposite of each other as well when we are talking about E. coli versus mycobacterium for using as a part of the protocol. I was. That's why I just ask about. Yeah, so rather than using E. coli, um, so so Mycobacterium is the it's the original organism that produces for a lot of different. E. coli is kind of the easiest bacteria to use to make these kind of proteins, but but in this case, um, Mycobacterium was uh, it was a better choice because this because of how complicated these enzymes are. Thank you so much. No worries. Um, yeah, Kirko, did you have a question or comment? Okay, um, in the meantime, uh, Jamie, you came on stage. Do you want to ask something? Thank you very much, Katarina. First of all, Doctor, that was a really amazing uh, talk. Thank you so much for this. Um, and I actually am gobsmacked. This, this concept is genius. This um, bacteria, like, get, electricity from hydrogen that's amazing um and so my question is well actually first of all the um molecule size paper that was just frozen that was really cool you weren't lying you definitely came through on that one that was very 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 cool um and so my first question is i'm trying to understand uh, see the when you're looking at the um when the bacteria is making these turning the air into electrons right what is that doing then when it's in a, in a dormant state? Is that like little little electric current keeping it alive? Is that what that's like, like a low power setting or something? Is that what the electrons are doing? Basically, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 very similar to you know a large scale electrical device, but I, I'm not sure how how familiar you are with with um, cell bacterial cell biology, but basically. What bacteria do is they use these electrons to, they have special pumps and they use these electrons to pump protons from the inside of the cell to their outside of their cell. And then they 
use so then that creates a difference in the concentration of protons in it and then they use those protons to to run a, a machine across the membrane called um atp atp synthase which makes atp which is like an energy molecule and i, I guess the best way to think of this is it, it's basically kind of like a hydroelectric dam right or a, a pumped hydro dam so if you think about the protons as it's the same thing as, as the water in a dam. The bacteria uses this energy from the electrons to pump these protons out of the cell. And then in the same way that the turbines in a dam convert the, the energy from the water being at a higher elevation into electricity, the cells use that gradient to produce chemical, a chemical um, energy. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's that's making sense well, as as much as I'm able to grasp it. But yeah, that actually that is really really cool, really cool. Um, and the next question, and I'm sorry if you actually covered this bit, was a wee bit confused. But you know, when you were looking at, you were pulling the bacteria apart to find the enzymes and stuff, the ones that turn the air into electricity, the hydrogen into electricity. Does this mean to use um, this as a as a means to create power, does this mean we'd have to have the whole bacteria or were you extracting the parts that does turn into electricity? So would we just have like a, a small tub of um, genetic material or, like, or just, the, just the enzymes and that's creating the power or is it literally the whole bacteria we would need? Sorry, I should explain this. No, I don't think I, I don't think I did. I mean, I kind of did in the purification, but I don't think I addressed it explicitly. It's a really good question. Yeah, so at least in in the applications that I'm thinking of, we would initially grow the bacteria, and you know, ultimately in in huge volumes, right? So you might grow a hundred thousand liters of, of bacterial culture, and then we would process the bacteria to like extract out the enzymes. So at the end of the process, we would just have the single enzyme that does this job. Ah, okay, so once you've got the enzyme then, it would just be, well, essentially like a self-perpetuating battery. Well, yeah, I guess the enzyme's kind of like your, it's your converter, right? So the energy itself is is in the hydrogen, it's in the electrons in the hydrogen. And and what the enzyme does is it converts, it, it takes, it extracts those electrons from the hydrogen and uses them to, in electrical circuit to make energy, right? So it's sort of like the middleman, I guess, but it's a very efficient middleman. Thank you very much. That's amazing. Please don't stop your work. This is incredible stuff. Thank you. Thanks, mate. How's it going? Sorry about that, uh, Katarina. I'm at work and I kind of got tied up. Uh, but I do have like a couple like kind of abstract questions that just are like, I kind of ask them. Um, so the first one, uh, so you know how like stars, like they shoot off all types of charged particles and like for the sun, it probably shoots off a lot of hydrogen uh, or protons or whatnot. Uh, so in a situation like that, do you think it's uh, like, as your research continues and you get more results, do you think it's like potentially feasible uh, that maybe uh, you can use like, like kind of like, like some of those protons, maybe if you have a way to turn it back into, uh, to H2 hydrogen and then use that as an energy source for like space. You know what I'm saying? Because like I feel like it's one of the big issues with staying in space for long times outside of, you know, solar isn't that, um, I guess, like conversion wise, like how much 
energy it gets, how much it can like give you isn't like the most like efficient. So do you think like that could be a potential uh, use case for something like this? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, Jupiter and Saturn and, you know, these gas giants are like, you know, a large part of them is, is molecular hydrogen, right? And so I think the issue more than the presence of hydrogen would be having something that you can have accept the electrons. So in order to make the electrical circuit, you both need the hydrogen to produce the electrons. And then you need something like oxygen, molecular oxygen, which will, which has a higher potential and will accept the electrons. And it's, it's the difference in the potential between these two molecules that lets you to do, do the work and to make electricity. And so if you could find, I don't know, something in like the asteroid belt, because it doesn't have to be oxygen, it can be um, any kind of other oxidized compound. If you could find something which could accept the electrons, then you, you would basically have an unlimited source of, of power, right? Speaking of, you actually just walked right into the second question. So, uh, like, you know, there's different planets like Jupiter, I think maybe Saturn, maybe Mars has, like, a decent amount of, like, atmospheric hydrogen. Uh, and we always talk about, like, whether or not, like, because these different planets, I don't know about Mars, but, like, I can imagine, like, Jupiter, I think they say Venus may have one. Uh, but I don't think Venus has much hydrogen. Uh, they may have like a layer in their atmosphere that's like uh, like habitable. So do you think there's a possibility that like maybe on, on these uh, more distant planets that in this like hydrogen-filled layer that there could be a bacteria that utilizes hydrogen in this way? Yeah, super, super interesting question, right? So there's a lot of... Um... There's a lot of kind of speculation or, or people who do this kind of research, they, te they tend to think that hydrogen was probably, you know, the first fuel for life, you know, it would have been present in the early atmosphere and the atmosphere would have been anaerobic then. And so microbes would have evolved to use this first. And so I think it's, yeah, it's, it's something which um, makes sense in terms of the initial evolution of life and given the amount of time. If, if conditions were right, at least monocellular life, you, you could see how it could have evolved. Obviously, I can't say one way or another because I don't know, but but yeah, it definitely seems like a possibility to me. And we wouldn't know. We can't we can't know because we can't analyze things on that scale at this stage. Super cool. Maybe like one last question. If that's cool, Katerina. Okay. Um, so. I don't know if you may have mentioned this, uh, but did you guys ever, like, investigate, like, I guess, evolutionary closeness of, like, the uh, bacteria that you isolated um, this, like, protein from with, like, other um, members of its, you know what I'm saying, its taxonomic family to see, like, like which one has more conserved units to, like, I guess, get, like, an evolutionary age? Like, was it something that kind of, it didn't change much or did it? uh pick this up like further along this evolutionary path yeah that's a good question I, I haven't personally done the analysis to figure out when mycobacterium picked up this trait but um so i don't know if you're familiar with metagenomics but basically this is a this is a relatively new technique where you take you extract like all the dna from us from the soil or the environment and you sequence all of it at once and figure out the genomes of, of many of the bacteria that are living there. And so based on the, those techniques and analysis of that data, it's it's predicted that, you know, between maybe, depending on the environment, between 50 and 80% of bacteria living in, in soils have 
have enzymes that are capable of doing this, right? So it's it's not the exception. It's more of the rule than the exception that, that bacteria everywhere are using this as an energy source. Um, so I, I guess it is probably pretty ancient. Um, I don't know how far, because, you, you know, there's a certain moment when um, cyanobacteria started photosynthesizing and made all the oxygen that we have in the air today, or a lot of it, and we went from having an anaerobic atmosphere to a to an aerobic atmosphere. And so from then that point onwards, hydrogen would have been probably a minor component of the atmosphere and, and maybe since then. So I, I forget how long ago that was, but hundreds of millions of years, right? May I ask Super cool, thanks, man. Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, may I ask another question, please? Sure. Yeah. I was going to ask, I just, uh, I remembered in, earlier on in your talk, you were saying that most of the bacteria in the world is actually in a dormant stage or something like that, right? And um, doing this with the air, is, is that what you said? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So so most, most bacteria are um, in a dormant state due to limitation of energy sources. And, and I think this kind of makes intuitive sense when you think about the fact that, you know, bacteria undergo you know binary fission to divide right so they can engage in exponential growth and so if there's nutrients around that are required for growth they can grow very quickly until eventually all of those nutrients are gone and then there's nothing left to eat so then they kind of just sit around and and yeah one of the predominant ways or, or at least one of the ways that they support themselves in this state is through through the um, hydrogen in the atmosphere that's actually amazing uh, the fact that there's, there's tons and tons of bacteria just all dormant um that's kind of awesome but see when it's extracting uh the the stuff from the air what does that do to the air then once it's extracting the hydrogen from the oxygen is it is it not oxygen anymore what does that become do you know or is that a dumb question no 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 this is this is a good question so i guess the one of the reasons probably why the concentration of hydrogen is quite low is because uh, everywhere are taking out as much of it as they can right and so that's why we don't have so much the overall effect on the concentration of oxygen is probably not so uh pronounced simply because there's a lot i mean there's hundreds of thousands of times more oxygen millions of times there's a lot more oxygen than there is hydrogen right so it's going to have a relatively small effect and also photosynthesis is making um oxygen all the time Right, so it is changing oxygen, but only slightly enough that it doesn't really make any difference to us in any other knockoff way that we know. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. The oxygen that's consumed by, like, you know, us eating a hamburger, human beings and animals, and everything that's undergoing respiration would be a lot more, I think. Ah, okay, cool. Thank you so much. Cheers, man. All right, thanks, Jamie. Yeah, thank you so much for answering all the questions. I wanted to check in with you if you have still time for like a couple of questions um, or if you need to to leave. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can hang around for another five, ten minutes or so. This is no problems. It's really nice to be here. Okay, wonderful. So, uh, yeah, welcome, John. Uh, please go ahead and ask your question. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, this is a wonderful uh, talk because uh, it really uh, broadened my mind to see some bacteria even use the hydrogen as an energy source. My question is, uh, is hydrogen the only source, uh, energy source for those bacteria? 
what are the benefits if, uh, of having, if this is uh, true, what's, see, how prevalent, uh, prevalent is, uh, uh, is this, uh, are those bacteria in nature? Does it, do they have a significant, uh, play a significant role in, uh, uh, environment, say like ecology wise? Yeah, great questions. Um, so hydrogen isn't the only thing they use. Um, bacteria actually also do this with the carbon monoxide and the methane that is in the air as well. Um, and we're working a bit on, on the carbon monoxide side of that. Um, we didn't have time to talk about it today. So any of the any of the gases in the air that basically can give the bacteria energy they seem to be using and depending on their ecosystem um, these the bacteria that do this can be quite prevalent and so especially in in really dry energy starved environments like antarctica or um or deserts um hot deserts uh up to 80 percent of of bacteria are are um, oxidizing atmospheric hydrogen and um, quite a few are also oxidizing carbon monoxide and methane. And, and so basically, I guess if, if there's other food sources around, like if you're in a, an environment where there's more photosynthesis, there's more inputs of, of carbon-based energy sources, probably on the whole, less bacteria will be doing this. But if you're in an incredibly starved environment, um, then bacteria are much more likely to be, and they can be dominant members of, of the microbial community. Another thing that's really interesting is, so the product of um, hydrogen oxidation with um, oxygen is water, right? And so we did a bit of uh, maths for a paper we did a while ago, and, and it kind of suggested in somewhere like Antarctica, where basically there's no free water available, this hydrogen oxidation could also be a source of metabolic water that could help keep cells hydrated. So there might be other benefits to it as well. Yeah, another question is, uh, since uh, hydrogen is a very, very low sea concentration in atmosphere do those bacteria have a sea mechanism of concentrated hydrogens to collect the hydrogens just curious yeah they don't really have a mechanism of of concentration but but how they've how they've kind of dealt with it is to make just to make these enzymes like huck just incredibly efficient so the, the, the catalytic efficiency um, which we calculated of HUC is, is is really high. So basically every time the enzyme encounters a hydrogen molecule, it, it converts it into, it breaks it open into electrons and protons. And so I think that's how they've coped with it because there's not really a, a physical way they can easily concentrate the hydrogen. Mm. Wow. Yeah, actually, see, I was thinking about it, see, like a, in space, there's a lot of uh, hydrogens, so if we can see release those bacteria, I don't know, <laughs> bacteria can, can collect those hydrogens. Yeah, so what we need in space is we need the electron acceptor, right? So we need something like oxygen that can complete the circuit and accept the electrons for us to make energy. And so, yeah, the abundance of hydrogen, I think, would be no problem. So it's figuring out where we would get and I'm not sure where we would find uh, a chemical or compound, a substance that we could use to make our reaction happen. Yeah, thank you. No problems. I've yeah, got please. another. Oh yeah, go ahead. Super random question, but it, I think it could be cool. Uh, so 
since like the the bacteria splits the hydrogen, uh, that should in it you know to the two protons, two electrons, that should also release like some energy. So I was kind of curious, and if you guys have any studies on like uh, like if it like 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 releases any wavelengths of light, you know what I'm saying? Because uh, if you could like find like the the spectrum of what it releases, you could potentially even find like if there's something similar, you know what I'm saying, in different planets, right? Yeah, it's a good thought. As far as I'm aware, that this reaction doesn't release anything on the visible spectrum. Um, I haven't actually looked into this. It, 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 there would be some inefficiency in the reaction, right? So it's probably releasing, it's probably releasing some kind of energy as heat or or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting thought, you know, as a, as a signature for for life. Um, cool thought. Yeah, thank you uh, for that interesting question. Um, and um, I wanted to uh, read out one more question from Eric. Um, I think green um, ammonia is simply a source of H2, but curious if that makes a difference in any of this context in that the future hydrogen economy might involve lots of ammonia. Um, yeah, this is this is kind of an interesting thought, right? So, I guess at least from my perspective, like the issue we have globally is it's more about energy delivery, like energy when we want it, rather than a fact that we don't have enough raw energy, right? Like half the Earth is bathed in sun, and we have the technology to capture that energy, and so um, green ammonia is a way of 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 kind of storing the energy chemical energy from hydrogen in a solid form that can then be later converted back into hydrogen and then used, right? So I, I guess one of the things that I think could be quite useful about our enzyme is it'll provide the ability to turn that hydrogen into electricity in kind of niche circumstances, you know, when you really need power on demand, but you don't necessarily have access to, you know, a large power source or a really um, abundant source of hydrogen. And, and so, yeah, depending on how much hydrogen the ammonia is producing, it, it could fit into a workflow potentially. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, yeah, I, I wanted to thank everyone for this really interesting questions that uh, were quite widespread. This um, shows again that it's so much more interesting if you know, other people than me <laughs> ask questions. Uh, and I, I love listening to these discussions and I hope um, you enjoyed it too today here, um, you know, to, to, um, to listen, like to speak here and to answer these questions. We um, had a lot of fun. I hope you enjoyed it. And yeah, maybe one day you'll join us again with with some updates um, of your future research. Would you maybe give us a little bit of a peek into the future, what you're working on, what the future might hold from your lab? Thank you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it was a real pleasure to be here today. I've not done a, um, a kind of presentation or a talk in this format before, and I think it worked really well. Um, and I might come along and, and listen to some of the future um, future presentations from this from this house. Yeah, so I guess in the future for us, one of the things we really want to do is, is start to address to how we turn this fundamental discovery for Huck into something useful. So 
look at how we can engineer the enzyme to make it more suitable for incorporation into bioelectronics, work out how to make a much more of it, potentially through doing synthetic biology and engineering the cells, and then just try and start to create some prototype devices that, that give us a clear indication of, of what we can actually use it for. Um, so that's one arm of things. And then aside from that, um, other interests in my lab, so I'm quite interested in, in bacteria and, and how they grow and how they cause disease. And so we study um, nutrient uptake is one of the things we study. So looking at the, the biology of the transporters that transport um, molecules that the bacteria need across membranes. And these can maybe be targeted by to prevent disease by blocking them and then preventing pathogens from getting essential nutrients, but can also have kind of a um, interesting side uh, benefits as well. One of these porins that was discovered a while ago, one of these membrane proteins, has been incorporated into a, a new revolutionary technology for sequencing DNA. So this is called nanopore technology. And, and so someone made a fundamental discovery and they discovered this, this, this protein, this enzyme pore, and then another car company developed it to make a new technology. So part of, part of what I like to do is just do basic science and then hope something which is discovered will turn out to be useful one day. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned that because we'll have a future room. We discussed it, you know, briefly in our science newsroom about, um, and I kind of thought about it when you were answering um, a question earlier um, about um, how drought is changing the 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 composition of um, microbes basically in the soil and um, that basically the carbon uptake is reduced because the bacteria that do carbon uptake are um, weaker or less during those conditions and i guess you also mentioned that you know in antarctica and desert and, and and places like that these type of bacteria kind of take over and it's a real problem for the soil to have less carbon and then also all these calculations we make with different landscapes that are kind of carbon dam um, dumps that these calculations won't work for the future if we will have droughts is there anything in that direction that you also study yeah, so I guess at the moment my research program focuses more on on the molecular basis, but but um my co-author co on the study, Professor Chris Greening, and other people that, that I'm involved with are really interested in these questions. And this is one of the powerful things about environmental microbiology and looking holistically about mo microbial communities and, and figuring out what they're doing, because you can start to make inferences or figure out, you know, stuff like this. Yeah, how a change in a microbial community might affect the soil's ability to uptake carbon or, you know, support plant life or, or something like that. And, you know, it's important to consider in the context of climate change, but it's also important to consider in terms of, um, you know, just general land use as well, right? And with stuff like carbon capture and storage schemes, which with the kind of carbon offset systems that we use can be worth a lot of money, um, th there might be incentives for just, you know, leaving native grassland, native grassland, because we find out that in that state, you know, the, the microbes in the soil are efficient at taking up carbon or something like that. So, yeah, it's a very interesting area and something that I, I'm following at least, if, if not working on actively at the moment. Well, wonderful. Uh, a small peek into our future is on May 12th. Uh, Dr. Allison is coming to, to share this research. So 
thank you so much again this was really wonderful um i hope we didn't take too much of your time now and yeah good luck for all your work a lot of funding it's really important thank you for doing this important work for all of us and um yeah i hope i hear you all again one day soon thank you thank no you worries so it's an absolute pleasure Okay, I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone, thank you.